1: Three interviews on this show today, on this Friday, September 2nd, entering the first full college football weekend of the year. Yeah, three interviews. That's rare uh, for this podcast. Um, But I just spoke moments ago with London Fletcher, and I think you are going to really enjoy this conversation with London. He had to do it early. He was heading out to the golf course Um, He's a big-time golfer. But I think you're going to hear London say some things that I at least haven't heard before and I thought were pretty revealing. Uh, He'll talk about his career in a way that maybe he hasn't so publicly in the past. You'll hear uh, him discuss the franchise of the three that he played for, Washington, Buffalo, and St. Louis, the Rams in St. Louis, that he feels most associated with. He talked about Dan Snyder uh, in this interview. He discussed what happened with Albert Hainsworth. He was here when Al got here. Uh, and of course, he gave me his thoughts about this year's upcoming team. i won't I won't give it away, but he's more optimistic than most of you are. Uh, I really enjoyed this interview with him. I think you will too. It's coming up uh, in a few minutes. Remember, London is now part of the radio. Uh, crew with Bram Weinstein and Julie Donaldson. Uh, but that's coming up. And then following London, Stanford Steve from Scott Van Pelt show. Uh, Stanford Steve's a good friend of mine. We're going to talk college football not only in terms of the upcoming season, uh, but he will give uh, some of his picks uh, for the weekend as well. And then one of my favorite people uh, in my life, Mark Stern, uh, who – uh, produces Tony's show, of course, is Nigel. Mark covers the U.S. Open for the tour, actually. He's got a podcast called Courtside at the U.S. Open. He's been in New York all week. He's been there for both of the Serena Williams matches uh, matches so far, and he'll be there for tonight's Serena Williams third-round match. So, we will talk to Mark as well. Smell test coming up in this opening segment. Got off to a 1-0 start last night with Central Michigan. More on that uh, opening night win coming up when I get to the smell test. Um, this show today is brought to you in part by MyBookie. Use my promo code, KevinDC, when you go to MyBookie.ag or MyBookie.com, and you'll get your initial deposit doubled. All of your football betting needs met with fair lines, fair pricing and a double deposit bonus that most places don't offer. mybookie.ag, mybookie.com use my promo code kevin dc. Also, Window Nation is sponsoring the show today. They are offering up a football season special, Window Nation's halftime show. You can score new windows from Window Nation at half the price. Get 2 free windows with every 2 you buy no limit plus pay nothing. No down payment, no payments, and no interest until 2025. So you'll lower your energy bills, raise the value of your home uh, if you go with Window Nation at 86690 Nation or windownation.com. All right, uh, before we get to the London Fletcher Stanford Steve and Mark Stern uh, in interviews. I wanted to mention a few things. Um, Number one is college football from last night. Two excellent games last night. Uh, The return of the backyard brawl goes to Pitt, 38-31 over West Virginia. It was a 56-yard pick-six return with three minutes to go that won it for Pitt. Um, By the way, it was a terrible drop by the West Virginia receiver. The ball went right through his hands, got returned for a touchdown, um, and gave Pitt a 38-31 lead. West Virginia had a chance at the end. A 4th and 16 throw to the Pitt one-yard line was reviewed and called incomplete. Everybody seemed to agree with the call on that. If you were watching the game, maybe you did too, I actually thought it was a catch. I thought he got his arm under the ball even though it did touch the ground, I don't think he ever lost control of it, the receiver. Anyway, uh, before the game um, got to that point, uh, there were a couple of of big decisions. Um, The biggest being a fourth and one that West Virginia had um, with roughly six minutes to go in the game in pit territory, up seven. They had been ramming the ball down pits' throats with their running game. And for some reason, Neil Brown decided to punt it with fourth and one with a seven point lead at the pit 48 yard line. Again, they rushed the ball down. Pitt's throat to the tune of 5.6 yards per carry. They had scored on their previous two drives on long drives highlighted by their ability to run the football. That was a weak decision by the West Virginia coach. Um, They were probably in position to run the clock down to something inside two minutes and at worst come away with a field goal for a 10-point lead. Instead, Pitt took over. Uh, after the punt at their own eight-yard line, went 92 yards to tie the game and then got the pick six, uh, the interception return uh, to win the game. Uh, One thing about this game, uh, the same goes for Penn State and Purdue, the second game I'm going to mention here in a moment. That game was nearly four hours long. If it had gone to overtime, it would have probably been a a four-and-a-half to five-hour game. I've mentioned for years that I love college football. In many ways, I really prefer Saturdays to Sundays. I love the NFL, don't get me wrong, but I love college football. I love everything about it. But the one criticism I've had is the games are too long. I mean, these games last close to four hours and sometimes longer. And there's one rule change that would make a significant difference, and that is don't stop the clock after first downs to move the chains. There are too many explosive plays in college football, which leads, by the way, to much higher scoring games, which just by the nature of higher scoring games, games are going to be longer because you're going to have more clock stoppages with scores. But they add to that by stopping the clock, at least for a few seconds, sometimes longer, to move the chains after first downs. They should stop that. Now, to keep the tradition of the college game of having the clock stop after a first down, you know, keep it for the final two minutes of the game. You know, let the clock stop after a first down in the final two minutes of a game. But all game long just adds to the length of the football game. And that game last night was four hours. The other great game last night was Penn State and Purdue. Purdue was. The team actually, many believe, to be the better team coming in last night. They were a a three-and-a-half-point underdog. uh, But Penn State wasn't ranked um, preseason this year. I don't want to overshadow Penn State quarterback Sean Clifford's redemption drive at the end of the game after throwing a terrible ball that got returned for a touchdown. You had a, a pick six in that game as well that gave Purdue Uh, a 31-28 lead with just over eight minutes left. Clifford and Penn State had three chances with the ball after the pick six, did nothing on the first two drives. And then with one final chance, Penn State Nation, by the way, at at that moment getting getting ready to throw Clifford to the Wolves. With just over two minutes to go, third chance down 31-28, he leads an 80-yard drive going 6-for-7, 72 yards, and the winning touchdown pass from 10 yards out. He was 14-of-30 before that final drive, went 6-for-7 for for 72 of the 80 covered yards, and was flawless on Penn State's final drive, and they get the win 35-31. Purdue coach Jeff Brom criticized heavily after the game for his offensive play calling, the team's offensive play calling. After they got the pick six for a 31-28 lead midway through through the fourth quarter, they got the ball back twice and did nothing with it. But worse than that, they didn't burn any clock. The first time they got the ball back was with six with about six and a half to go. The second time with about four and a half to go, up three They ran the ball one time on 14 snaps. Once. So they didn't burn much clock. They didn't force Penn State to take timeouts. And they left too much time for Penn State. So Jeff Brom was being just torched last night on Twitter. I have a slightly different take. Certainly, you know, you with a three-point lead and you're down to the last six-plus minutes in the game, you'd like to take some clock off, burn the clock, and end up with some points. I think it's a bit nitpicky because Purdue could not run the football last night against Penn State. The way they had moved the football and scored points, really, other than the pick six, was through the air. Aiden O'Donnell, their quarterback, threw for 356. They only ran it for 70 yards. So Brahm, I think, was going with what he thought was their best chance to move the sticks and keep the ball and potentially score again they just didn't execute it, you know it's easy to look at that and say you've got the lead you get the ball back two times in the final 6 minutes and you basically burnt a total of like a minute and a half or 2 minutes of clock time and you th- you threw it you know 13 times and ran it once I get it. I mean, a little bit more balance, at least, would have been called for. But they weren't running the football against Penn State. They were struggling to to run the football in that game, uh, and they threw it pretty effectively. In fact, the Iowa transfer, the the wide receiver Charlie Jones, who played with Aiden O'Connell. I said O'Donnell before. I meant O'Connell. Um, you know, same uh, Irish background, I'm sure. Uh, but Aiden O'Connell. Um, And Charlie Jones had played together in grade school. And Jones had 12 catches for 153 yards in his first game with Purdue. Uh, So, again, nitpicking a bit to just crush Jeff Brom, I think that's my personal uh, view. Because I don't know that running the football would have done anything than just force Penn State to use their timeouts and then would have run more clock but Penn State's winning touchdown drive happened in a minute. Uh, so anyway, uh, two really good games last night. Really, really good football games uh, to open up the first Thursday night of college football. Um, the second thing I wanted to get to here in the open uh, of the show, some commander's news Ben Standig reporting this morning that Cam Curl has an injured thumb that may have required surgery. So they his right arm was in a sling yesterday, and it could have been a cast. Uh, Rivera was asked to uh, you know uh, d- describe the injury to Cam Curl, and he said, I'm not going to do that. I don't, I don't have to do it until next Wednesday when we put the injury report out. So good for him. He doesn't need to, to talk about that. Um, uh, ben wrote that it's unclear when Curl was injured because he didn't play in the Baltimore game. So it must have happened sometime during practice earlier this week. If he misses some action, Derek Forrest is likely the replacement for him. Um, so uh, look uh, for some news on that next week. I, maybe we'll get something before Ron Rivera speaks on Wednesday, but I'm going to guess we we won't know for sure until that first injury report comes out. Uh, all right, the last thing I want to get to here in the open to the show is the first smell test of this football season. Uh, let's get to that. Kevin looks where the John Q. public is putting their cash and does the opposite. It's time, time for, for the Smell, smell test. test. The Smell Test off to a 1-0 and oh start wasn't easy. Had to work to get it last night with Central Michigan plus the 22. They were down 51-15 to 15 early in the third quarter. I had chalked it up as a loss, as many of you um, had as well because you tweeted me uh, to tell me um, what a shitty start I had gotten you off to. Um, I am accepting uh, all apologies. No, I, I chalked it up as a loss too. I thought they, I thought it was over. They they outscored Oklahoma State's backups twenty nine to seven. They actually had the ball back down fourteen with like two and a half to go. Uh, trying to win the damn thing, trying to get back into it. Um, I knew with their quarterback and running back and their offensive uh, group coming back and a well-coached team that they would be able to score and they will score this year. Uh, And the game started off competitively, and then it got sideways. I I didn't think it had a chance, but we will take it. Uh, You know, they don't draw a picture on your betting ticket on how it got done. It's either a win or a loss. And last night was a win, a one and O start to smell test year number 17. Uh, yeah. 17th year of doing this smell test. It started all the way back when I was doing a show with John Riggins and Gary Braun. Um, May have started the year before that, actually. Uh, But anyway, uh, I have had 11 winning seasons, five losing seasons. One of those losing seasons was last year. I was 90, 92, and 6 for the entire football season, two games under five hundred. Weird year because a lot of the people that handicap uh, the way I do and pick games the way I do, sort of an anti-public contrarian um, philosophy, which now it seems that everybody has. Uh, but, you know, it was novel uh, 17 years ago. Um, A lot of those guys, including my very good friend Scott Van Pelt, did very well. He finished 19 games over 500 with the picks on his show. I had so many games every week that sort of fit the model, and then for some reason I picked the wrong ones, and I uh, excluded a lot of those that ended up winning. Um, I personally didn't have a terrible year gambling, but the smell test didn't do exceptionally well. Uh, But two games under 500 you know, at least you didn't get your ass kicked. Um, Anyway, uh, for those of you that don't know, yeah, it's a bit of an anti-public, contrarian, zigging-when-everybody-else-is-zagging strategy. It incorporates definitely some information um, that I've had access to for many, many years for reasons I will not uh, talk about. Um, But, yeah, I get information every week during football season in particular uh, as to where a lot of the super sharp action. And there isn't a lot of what you would call super sharp betters. You know, a lot of people don't really understand that. There are some um, that are, you know, relatively uh, speaking, feared by books. um, But there aren't a lot of those people. Um, But anyway, yeah. it's a combination of all that that leads to, you know, somewhere between, I don't know, four and 15 selections uh, each week. Um, I don't have any selections for tonight. I, I like two games personally that I'm going to play. I like TCU uh, with Sunny uh, with Sonny Dykes as the new coach to really amp it up offensively. They're laying 14 at Colorado. I think Colorado stinks. Um And I also like a little bit tonight, not as much as I like TCU, but I like Illinois a little bit, getting a point and a half at Indiana. I'm a big Brett Bielma fan. I think he's going to get it done at Illinois. I think they will be – um, a significantly better at football than they've been um, in recent years. Uh, but those are not official plays. The official plays are all Saturday games. I don't have a Sunday game, I don't have the Sunday night game, and I don't have the Monday night game uh, in this smell test. Uh, Clemson plays Georgia Tech on Labor Day night, and the Sunday night game is LSU and Florida State. Uh, I don't have a selection on either one of those games. If that changes, I'll let you know. Um, But uh, I have eight selections uh, for tomorrow, Saturday, which will make it nine total in the opening weekend. Let's start with App State at home against North Carolina. Uh, This is now the post-Sam Howell era at North Carolina, and I think they're going to struggle this year. App State Um, is a team that the public really doesn't know much about, even though they actually were in a bowl game last year. They are laying a point and a half at home against Carolina, I'll take App State. I would play that sooner rather than later. There's been sharp money moving this line upward. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if by kick by kickoff, App State's two, two and a half, three. Um, I am playing it right now as I am recording this podcast at App State minus one and a half. There's an early start in the Rose Bowl tomorrow, 1130 a.m. local time for UCLA and Bowling Green. Uh, UCLA is one of the biggest public plays on the board tomorrow for some reason. They're laying 23-and-a-half. I'll take the team from back east or from the Midwest um, getting 23-and-a-half against a team that I I think has a chance to be a good team in the Pac-12 this year. Um, But I'll take Bowling Green uh, plus the 23-and-a-half. We're going to buy some key half points as we have the last two years, but I'll leave that at 23-and-a-half and and not buy the half point uh, to 24. I may may regret that. Uh, Cincinnati and Arkansas, two ranked teams. Uh, I think Cincinnati comes in ranked 22nd, Arkansas 23rd. Um, Cincinnati losing all those players off that final four team, including their quarterback Desmond Ritter, but they are well coached, they are well stocked, and I think they've got a chance to win this game outright in Fayetteville uh tomorrow afternoon. The public is backing Arkansas. I'll take Cincinnati by the half point at plus seven. UTSA is home against Houston. Houston's ranked twenty-fifth in the in the country. Uh I know I've had UTSA several times over the last uh, several years. It doesn't always work out, uh, but Houston's another major public play tomorrow. I'll take I'll take UTSA. That's U- University of Texas San Antonio. I'll take them plus the four. You, uh, BYU is coming south tomorrow in the heat of South Florida play, to, to, uh, to play USF. Um, tough for a Mountain Region team coming east and facing that heat and humidity. USF can score a little bit. They're catching a short number, 11 and a half. It's perceived as short by the public. BYU was one of my favorite teams last year to bet on, um, and they had that running back, Tyler Algier, who's in Atlanta, who I think is going to be outstanding. Uh, I'll take USF plus the 11 and a half. One of the best games of the day tomorrow uh, comes tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. In the Swamp. Florida Getting three now. Uh, if it's two and a half where you are, that's fine. I'm buying the half point. I'm going to take the Gators at home plus the three against eighth-ranked Utah, a team that some are picking to make the final four this year. Uh, that is a big-time opener, uh, I think, on ESPN tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Give me the Gators plus the seven. Miami of Ohio is getting 16 tomorrow Uh, in Lexington against 21st-ranked Kentucky um, and Mr. Levis at quarterback. I'll take Miami of Ohio plus 16. They're a major, um, major uh, anti-public side. Lastly, I'm going to take Georgia State at South Carolina getting 12-and-a-half. Sean Elliott's done a good job at Georgia State. Um, He was at South Carolina for many years. Uh, South Carolina coming off, you know, a decent season, certainly Um, last year that finished up with that bowl win uh, over North Carolina. Uh, And so Shane Beamer doing a a really nice job um, there. But I think the line's short. The public does too. They're playing the Gamecocks. I'll take Georgia State plus the 13. So there you go. Uh, Last night we had Central Michigan plus 22 winner. Tomorrow, Appalachian State minus a point and a half. Bowling Green plus 23 and a half. Cincinnati plus seven. UTSA plus four. USF plus 11 and a half. Florida plus three. Miami of Ohio plus 16. And Georgia State plus 13. Uh, Very much in line with my um, philosophy of not playing many favorites. All underdogs in week one. Good luck for entertainment purposes only. Up next, my conversation with London Fletcher right after these words from a few of our sponsors.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. right now get up to 60% off your Babel subscription at com slash blue wire that's 60% off at babbel.com slash blue wire spelled b-a-b-b-e-l.com slash blue wire rules and restrictions apply
1: All right, jumping on the podcast right now is one of the greatest linebackers in Washington franchise history. London Fletcher is with us. London is in the team's radio booth this year, uh, calling games with Bram and Julie, first year uh, calling games. And yesterday, the team announced, and not surprisingly, that he was one of the next 10 added to the team's 90 greatest players Of all time. I mean, you were a total no brainer. Everybody knew you were going to be in. Um, I'm curious and answer as directly and honestly as you can. Do you consider yourself more of a Ram where you won a Super Bowl, a Buffalo Bill where you played for several years, or a Washington Redskin?
2: I'll answer it this way I I bleed burgundy and gold. Does That answer your question.
1: <laughs> that, that answers it. Um, even though you won a Super Bowl as a very young player in St. Louis,
2: yeah, you know that's part of my my legacy, part of my history, being a champion. That will always be a part of me. That special team that we had in '99, and for, for the Rams of giving for giving me an opportunity when I when I came out of college at John Carroll University <clears throat> as a Division III player, being able to make their team and and being on part of that Super Bowl winning team. But I went to Buffalo for five years, played in St. Louis for four and I finished my last seven in Washington and, and the way the organization treated has treated me and treated me during my time there. I I I, I debt of gratitude to them, to uh, Mr. Snyder and, and his wife uh, Tanya and, and the organization in as a whole and that's why I believe Burgundy and go they they treated me the best out of all these out of all the organizations that I played for,
1: you know it's funny because your name comes up often um, in different you know ways. You're obviously you know you're an Iron Man for this organization. You're the only one of only five players in NFL history to play in over 250 consecutive games. You hold the record for consecutive starts at the linebacker position. Do you ever feel that your career has been underrated?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Without a doubt, there's there's no question that my career was underrated while I was playing, and you know, kind of even overlooked since I've retired. In terms of Hall of Fame battling and and honors and things like that, during my time that I was playing, there were numerous times. I only made four Pro Bowls, but when you look at the numbers that I put up, it's mind-boggling that I only have four Pro Bowls and only two All Pros on my uh, on my career resume it just doesn't make sense. You can't you can't put up the type of numbers that I put up and only have, you know, four pro bowls and two second team all-pros it just doesn't make sense. Other than the fact that people just overlooked me and, and when it was a popularity contest a lot of those times so, you know, just it's just the way it is, the way it goes and one of the more popular players in terms of nationally. My teams and my teammates they all appreciated what I did and the guys who competed against me, they know they know what I brought to the table and and what they were going to be dealing with. And if they didn't they didn't get me blocked, it was going to be a long day for for them and and also the things that I can do in coverage and and also from a leadership standpoint with my team and my defenses. But without a doubt, my career was overlooked and underrated, and and it, it should be mentioned as one of the greatest in the, in the NFL history at the linebacker position.
1: You know, it's funny. Um... You did. You only had four Pro Bowls. They were all in Washington. You made two all-pro second teams both times in Washington in 2011 and 2012. But you were like a Pro Bowl alternate like 58 times or something. I'm exaggerating. But you were like a Pro Bowl alternate I think 11 or 12 times before you finally made your first Pro Bowl at the age of 34. Which you were, you had been a tackling machine in the league for many years. You know, going back to St. Louis and then through Buffalo, uh, and and it took that long. Uh, I don't know, two or three years ago. I remember um, when you retired a, a, a while back, and then we had the conversation then, and we had a conversation a few years ago, and I remember putting your numbers up against like Ray Lewis. You know, somebody who's considered to be in the conversation of the greatest middle linebacker in the history of the game. Other than the All-Pros and the Pro Bowls, statistically, you guys are pretty dead even. I don't know. Have you gone through that process of comparing yourself statistically to other great players at your position or not?
2: I haven't gone through the process, but there have been people who have gone through the process. Um, I've seen that the... the Thing on social media, I've seen also in greater detail where a couple of people have actually written articles putting myself up not only against Ray but all the the middle linebackers of my era and showing you know where we stack up stati- uh, statistically and it's a, Ray's the only one who whose numbers are are better than mine and, and you know over for as a whole you know when you look at from uh, all the all the number standpoint but. The rest of the guys, they they don't they don't
1: no they pale they pale they're, in comparison yeah, yeah they
2: pale in comparison but some of those guys are already in the hall of fame and again it's it's just part of it it was I I put it like this you know when you play in St Louis a smaller market you play in Buffalo another small market it's tough for a for a defensive guy to get that recognition offensive guys you're gonna get a lot more recognition because you can put up numbers and and you know the the touchdowns and highlight plays those will stand out a lot more those are ones that will be highlighted and and run on the on the different shows nationally but when you're a defensive guy and you're playing in those smart markets it's just tough to to get that recognition nationally and that it wasn't until i came to washington and played in a big market that all of a sudden i made the pro bowls And, and i'll tell you this kevin i didn't I was a great player even before I came to Washington. I put up numbers I know. before I came to Washington. So, you know, it wasn't like I all of a sudden got there and it was like, man, I, I, I turned into some other player. No, I was I was a, I was a beast in, in St. Louis. I was a beast in, in Buffalo. It's just, you know, the market kind of dictated me not getting that that attention that I deserved.
1: I think that, you know, a small market team that wins, you know, there's not an issue. I think more of the issue, this would be my opinion, is that after early in your career in 99 in your second year in the league winning a Super Bowl and being a significant part of that Super Bowl winning team um, with the Rams that beat the Titans, uh, you just weren't on enough teams that were contenders. I mean, you weren't on any that was a legitimate contender in Washington or Buffalo.
2: Well I would say this in in terms of we had great defenses though. I played on great defenses. In Buffalo Buffalo yeah. I played on some defenses that were that were top two in the league that were number two ranked defense in the National Football League a couple times. You know, you so it wasn't like it. defensively we had some players and I was a part of that unit and they did some great things. But my defense of the first three uh three years in Washington, we were top ten every year. You know we are top ten. We I think we went fourth, eighth, and tenth. So you know we put up we put up numbers from a defensive standpoint. Again, you mentioned that being in the small market. If you win consistently, things a lot easier for you. We we didn't in Buffalo, St. Louis. We won. We won national, uh, the Super Bowl. So that that helped elevate. Especially our offense was highlighted so more uh, so much. Um, it kind of overshadowed what we, ever, what we were able to do from a defensive standpoint. We're in Buffalo. We didn't win. We, we didn't make a playoff. Didn't make the playoffs. But defensively, oh man, it's going to be a long day for you going against uh, some of those defenses that we we had in Buffalo and then Washington. You know, I made the Pro Bowls because again, it's a bigger market. We're playing in more national games. People are seeing what I'm able to do and seeing what I was doing and and. You know, that's why I was able to finally make breakthrough.
1: You know, your first year, you were a Gibbs brought in player in 2007. And so you got one year with Greg Williams, one year, obviously a tragic year, your first year in Washington um, with Sean's passing. Um, I think that was the last really good defensive team that we had. I think that 2007 team was the last really good defensive team that we've had because since you retired, there have been some horrendous defensive teams over the last, you know, seven, eight, nine years. But I thought that 2007 defense that you played on here was do – you, do you agree that of the teams you played on here, do you think that was the best defensive team or not?
2: I would say 2007 and, you know, when you had Sean, obviously – you know, his his ability to just erase so many different things back on the back end. That was probably the best, I would agree with you from that standpoint. Now, the 2018, the statistically, we ranked higher mm-hmm. than the 2017. I think 2008, we may have been eighth. In 2008, I believe we were probably fourth. So we're actually better statistically, um, and, you know, there's a lot of different variables that come into play. But, you know, with that 2008 team didn't have Sean. So it's just, yeah. it, it, heck, if, it, if, we, if you throw him into the mix, you know, we may have been a number one ranked defense um, instead of uh, number four. So, you know, from a talent standpoint, the 7 team definitely was the, uh, I would say, probably the best.
1: Yeah, 2008 too, right, was the year that uh, D'Angelo got picked up halfway through the season.
2: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're right about I, that. I, yeah. I, I think yeah. So, so, so that yeah that yeah, that yeah, he did. Yeah. So that changed that changed the dynamics as well, having having D Hall and he came in the last eight games and he played locked down corner at the cornerback position. He yeah. really came in, you know, just was ultra focused and and really I mean for him to fit in in that group and that team and it wasn't our our defensive meeting room <laughs> we they there were no punches pulled in there. <laughs> Yeah, he was coordinator Greg Flott, So he came in, and, and you know he became he became you know our our top corner in, in a short period of time. But you know I, I had Greg Williams who my head coach in Buffalo, so I, I had spent right. several years with him as a coach, and then he was my defensive coordinator that one year in 07, you know, another uh, great defensive coordinator. You know what I'm also
1: reminded of, thinking about those teams, the 07, 08, and then the team that followed, and, and Greg Blosh was the defensive coordinator. You were there for the signing of Albert Hainsworth and then the deterioration of the relationship between Albert Hainsworth and the team. What was that like to be a part of that?
2: You know, I was very disappointed because – from a talent standpoint, from pure talent standpoint, Albert was one of the most physically gifted guys, you know, that I've ever lined up with. And I've been on teams with Hall of Famers and you know future Hall of Famers. And just from a pure talent standpoint, I mean, there was you know Albert was up there. He's a Hall of Fame talent, but he didn't have necessarily that Hall of Fame work ethic, and and you know the buy-in wasn't wasn't what it needed to be. And, you know, he was accustomed to doing things a certain way when he was in Tennessee and under Greg Blash Greg was a stickler on hey, doing things, you know, this way and you gotta be in your gaps. And um, you know, Albert Albert made a lot of plays, but he might, you know, backdoor blocks and all those types of things. So there was a there was some pushback and you know, it didn't get off to a great start to them once we switched to a three four. That first year we were in a four three defense being that when shanahan came in, we went to a three four and they were gonna put him at the nose tackle position, which meant he could even make he was gonna make even less plays <laughs> that was that was not a good thing and right. it was it was a situation where it definitely was action and we you know you got this guy who's you know one of' one of the best tackles in football, and he's not contributing because of you know him not buying into the system.
1: You know, you told me something, and London and I um, played golf together last week, and you told me something about, or you were telling all of us something about Albert Hainsworth. You know, there's this, this, this memory that it all changed when Mike got here, Hazlitt got here, they switched to the 3-4, and Albert didn't want to be a nose tackle. But you mentioned in 2009 he was in a 4-3, and he still wasn't thrilled with the way he was playing and being played in 2009, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was, again, he he had played in a 4-3 defense in Tennessee. And they in Tennessee, they they played a, a different type of 4-3. They played their defensive ends in what you call wide nine. And the tackles were kind of more pass rushing and getting out of the quarterback. It was more about, you know, you didn't have to necessarily – be be in your gap, so to speak at the uh, at all times, and he would if he had the, the B gap um and it was a run play he may have backdoored and, and went into the c gap, but then he was you know would chase down and make a bunch of plays well and that was fine they were they were that's the way they played in 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 Tennessee well once he came to Washington, our defensive scheme was was predicated on everybody being in their gaps and you know if you weren't weren't in your gap it was gonna affect everybody else on the on, on you know on the defense and and coach Blosh uh he didn't he he but he he did not like that so there was a lot of uh pushback and, and, and Albert wasn't happy and, and Greg Blash, anybody who knows him, he's not gonna back down. So it was it was definitely some you know, some tension. to say the least.
1: All right, we're going to get to this year's team here in a moment. But I learned something about you last week that I had no idea. And I think people listening, I'm not so sure everybody knows this about you either. You were a college basketball player before you became a college football player um, at John Carroll University in Ohio. Was basketball your first love? And did you think that that was going to be your sport?
2: Oh, without a doubt, basketball was my first love. I only played one year of high school football. Basketball was what I what I loved from elementary, you know, throughout up until you know going into college. I took a Division One basketball scholarship. I li- I like football while I was playing, but I didn't I didn't play tackle football until my senior year of high school. And from there, I had Division One football offers, but also basketball offers and decided that I wanted to stick with basketball and take take the D1 offer. I went to St. Francis um, University up in uh, Loretto, PA, and played there for a year, a year and a half, and then transferred and played basketball and football at John Carroll. But my my mind was set on, and my heart was set on basketball for as long as I can remember. And, you know, it wasn't until I started fouling too much that I was like, you know, maybe it's time to... To share this basketball up, I'm a little too <laughs> physical. The, re- the referees aren't allowing me to play physical. I like I like the bad boy style of defense, where you know the the old old school. You get physical with guys, and and the refs weren't weren't seeing it my way. So I was having three fouls too early in the game.
1: Were you kind <laughs> of a mini Barkley?
2: Uh, I was. It was I was a unique player in terms of I was strong for a point guard, physical the jump, um, you know, very quick. I I, I love going to the basket. Had a, had a, what I call the Tim Hardaway crossover, the UTEP two step. Yeah, I had that as part as part of my game, and you know, it was a streaky outside shoot. I, I can get high from three point land, but I was either threes or, or going all the way to the bucket. But in defensively, I get after you.
1: I mean, you were a boxy point guard. I mean, were you were you were you five ten in like two fifty? As a college no, basketball no, point guard?
2: No, 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 hey, okay. you, no, you, No, I was, no, I was, my, I was five ten and about two hundred pounds. Okay, all right. 205.
1: But you must yeah, have been one hell of a. My sh- freshman year. I mean, you just mentioned that you were your defensive, uh, you know, ability, but you must have been tough to check, too. I mean, especially if you had a oh, handle. Yeah. And yeah. I have to say that playing golf with, with London last week, you know, not all middle linebackers end up being really good golfers, but you have great hands in a great short game. And I, I bet that that's from your basketball background. Uh-
2: I, I, it's possible. Now I work at it. <laughs> but, no, but uh, you've got it, na- you've got work. natural
1: hands. I mean, there there you know you've got yeah. you've got yeah. a nat a natural feel that you wouldn't necessarily think of with a starting middle linebacker. All right. Um, I thought that was. I mean, everybody knows your story as a Division three college football player. I'm just not sure everybody knew that you actually were a D one college basketball player at Saint Francis. Um you got some D1 college football offers but they were more preferred walk on uh uh offers right from Ohio State and others
2: Both I had I got I had offers from Bowling Green, Miami of Ohio, uh maybe another I can't remember another like Mac School f- yeah. for a football scholarship football Ohio State and Michigan came in and they they wanted me to be a preferred walk on at their schools and I was like man I'm not I got scholarships. I'm not paying to go to school. I didn't come from a, a family with a bunch of money so you know, going to college and paying for it was <laughs> that wasn't right. gonna happen. Especially when I when I had scholarship offers. I had division one offers in football, division one offers in basketball. So when they talked about walk on, it was that that wasn't even part of the equation. And also I had my heart set on playing basketball, so that wasn't even in the equation. I did get an offer from Northern Illinois in basketball, and they were going to they want they said I could play both. They had already had a guy on the basketball team who was playing football as well, so that was that was intriguing to me, and I was almost ready to commit there because it would allow me to play both. But it was just I felt like it was a little home being a you know, up in Illinois, and and I wanted to, I, I wasn't ready necessarily to go that far away from home, so I ended up uh, going to St. Francis and just playing playing basketball.
1: Were you were you a good basket Were you a good player at John Carroll? How many years did you play both sports?
2: I played. I transferred in the middle of my sophomore year, so I finished the season out playing basketball, and then the next year I played football and basketball together, both. Seats. So I only played one year playing both sports in college.
1: Okay, one full season uh, playing both sports. One
2: full season, yeah, one full season playing both sports, and then after that, that second year playing basketball, I gave that up completely and played uh, two more years at Carroll, and then uh, strictly football only.
1: And was that because you was that because you saw a future an NFL future potentially, even though you were a D three school.
2: Dad and I was falling too much, and I was too frustrated. I was like, "This is too frustrating. I'm mad. <laughs> I'm upset. I I can't be physical like I want to. <laughs> they, they're taking away my 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 skill set." <laughs> so uh, I was just uh, I wasn't enjoying it anymore, any longer. And football was had come to the forefront, and there was a there was a realization that man. Maybe the NFL is a possibility. I had a couple coaches on our staff. We had a couple coaches on our staff that had been in the NFL on, in various different roles, or had connections in the NFL, and they were they saw they saw the potential, and, and that's they kind of put it into my ear. That's like, hey, London, we think you can play in the NFL, and I was like, okay, let me go ahead and uh, you know really embrace this and, and dedicate all my attention and time to to playing football.
1: All right, let's uh, let's talk about this team. Actually, before that, how's the booth going? I mean, this is a transition for you into a broadcast booth as the lead analyst. You know, uh, for an NFL team, how's it gone through the first three preseason games?
2: I think it's going well. You know, it's is with anything. It's a new, new, uh, new role, new element. I've been on television doing studio shows since I retired for CBS Sports Network. So I did that for. Eight years, I'm very comfortable in the studio. But being in the game and being calling the calling the game and being in the booth is a totally different dynamic. And also, we're doing it in a three person booth with uh, Julia and myself as the analyst and Bram as the play by play. So there's a dynamic and chemistry that you got to get used to. So just um, you know, the third, the third preseason game was I feel better than the the first. Um, I thought I felt great about our last game in just in terms of being in the booth and and the way uh, our chemistry in that game against Baltimore is exciting game, and I'm just looking forward. And I, I know we'll only get better, and we'll we'll continue to, to thrive off of each other. And uh, hopefully, it'll be it'll come to the point where fans will prefer to watch it on television, but listen to turn the sound down and listen to us on the radio because I I feel like we do a great job of informing you of what you're getting. You know, plays. Uh, why I def- why I play work offensively and defensively. That's what I what I really try to try to articulate to the to the listeners, letting them know what I'm seeing and giving them my, give them my perspective and my knowledge of playing the middle linebacker position for for 16 years. We we are the quarterbacks of the defense, so we see the defense as a whole. I understand defense is, and heck, I understand offense because that's what I was faced with. Or tasked with stopping for 16 years, and so I'm I'm uniquely qualified. I feel to to give them that that perspective.
1: The second uh, great franchise middle linebacker in the booth, of course, Sam Huff was in it for many <laughs> many years. All right, let's talk about this team. Um, when friends of yours, you know, ask you what kind of team Washington's going to have this year, what do you
2: tell them? I think they have a, the potential if they if they play up to their potential they have they have the potential to challenge for a playoff spot when you when you look at the nfc it's not as top heavy or as loaded as the afc you know you're going to have your four division winners and then i look at whether it's the nfc west with you're going to have san fran the rams arizona so they'll all be in the mix whoever doesn't doesn't win that division those two teams will be in the mix for one of three wild card spots and then you look at the NFC South is either Tampa or New Orleans, I feel, will win that division. The other team will be in the mix and probably make the playoffs between the Saints or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then in our division, it's us, the Cowboys, and the Eagles. You know, there'll be two other teams fighting for, for one of those spots, whoever doesn't win the division. So really, when you look at it, I think it's going to be about five teams fighting for those three playoff spots. And Washington will definitely be in the mix. We'll be in the mix to to uh, get one of those wild card spots. I'm not ready to say we're we should win the division. Um, just do we have the talent? Sure. If we play up to that potential, we could we could shock some people and win that division. But definitely, it, it wouldn't be. It's not far fetched to to expect us to compete for for a playoff spot.
1: When it comes to this team, what are you most confident in, and what concerns you the most?
2: Most confident in, I really like the playmakers on offense. Um, you know, I, I just there's so many guys that they'll be able to take advantage of the defense. Every single player, depending on you know you 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 can dictate matchups, uh, dictate the terms of the agreement. What I uh, terms of the ingre- agreement, like uh, like I like to call it, you can you can flex a running back out, get him lined up, uh, matched up against a. A linebacker on the running back or tight ends are, are very good weapons. Our receivers are very dynamic. I really like those. Um, concerned about the depth on of the, of the defense on the back end. You know there were some uh, some concerns obviously in the preseason with with our third down defense. This that it was an issue last year. Something that has to be fixed. If you want to if you want to play great defense, you have to be great on third down. That's to that. get off the field get the ball back to your offense and um, so those are concerns for me the uh, the depth of the defensive backs and the third down defense.
1: What do you make of the linebacker situation? You know they, they re-signed John Bostick the other day. We've known for a while that Rivera and Jack love Bostick. You know he's probably you without the athletic ability in the production <laughs> in terms of being kind of the coach on the field. You know they've always loved that about him about how smart he is. Um, But overall i mean you know it's holcomb it's Davis, and you know they they brought back mayo they they brought back bostic um there aren't a lot of linebackers on this team and and it's a question mark what what do you think of the group they have
2: i think davis and Holcomb are going to be really good this year i really like the way jamin played in the preseason and what i've seen so far of him in the training and training cap you can tell he's a lot more comfortable in his role a lot more comfortable in his play. I mean, there's some times where, you know, he's he the speed and athleticism. You see that, you know, every play he's making a play on the sideline or across the field, just running the guy down. But you also, and now the physicality of him taking on blockers and getting and, and shocking them in the hole or rocking their heads heads back, and then also Cole, as a as a middle linebacker, he you understand, he understands his role better and everything that comes with the middle linebacker position now having played it for a number of games last season so i I feel good about those two guys from a depth standpoint once you get into whether it's bostic or 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 mayo you're going to lose some athleticism with those guys but you you gain probably more savviness and and experience so those guys are going to have to do what we call ability align you know whatever your ability says with that you are. That's where you should align. <laughs> so um you know, from that standpoint, hopefully Jamin and, and Holcomb Cole don't go down because you will there will be a drop off from an athletic athletic standpoint and speed standpoint, but you'll you'll get enough up- from an experience standpoint and probably knowledge at this point just because uh Mayo and, and and um Bostic have been along for been around for so long. All
1: right, So um you know, you can't do uh, an interview about this team and talk about this team without weighing in on the kind of year that you think Carson Wentz is going to have. So what's your answer to that?
2: I think if Carson plays to his, his abilities and understands, he doesn't have to be the hero. He doesn't have to be the guy that goes out and throws for 350 a, a day, a game, for us to win. I mentioned – all the playmakers that we have, he just has to get the ball into to the hands of those playmakers and let them do the rest. Offensive line, the protection. Um, you know, we got one of the best offensive line coaches in the, in the NFL. They they protect him. The the offense will dial up plays to make, and he just has to has to uh, execute those plays. You know, if he if he plays to the level he played at, maybe a little bit better. Than he did at, at uh, uh, Indy last year, I think it'll be good enough. You know, just uh, just him playing at that level, it'll, it'll be more about him getting comfortable with his offense. This is a th- his third offense, first time playing in this type of offense. Getting comfortable with the playmakers he has around him, and you know, from there, he doesn't have to shoulder the load because there are so many playmakers on the offense.
1: Best case record, worst case record for this team. Prediction time.
2: Best case, uh, let's go twelve and five, 11 and six. Okay. Worst case, man, I'm too optimistic. I don't think worst case. That that's not in my. I don't. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a half a glass half full type of. Okay. I mean, glass half empty type of guy. I don't. I don't. I can't think of worst case there. That's. Uh, yeah. no well, like let me just say, you, for, a gu- think-
1: for a guy that took a stroke on a par three last week, I'm going to require that you answer this question. <laughs> hey,
2: the scope All I do is line. All I do is play where the stroke yard. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> design the course. I didn't. I didn't do the handicap. It was. Uh, let me... I take, hey, hey, but what, what did I do?
3: I know I what you did. Back. I got
2: a three two. You got. I, a free... I got a three two, baby. So you... that's. That's my my fault. Um, you know, I I, I really I, I haven't. Again, I it's all I can't think like worst case scenario. Like I don't, yeah, anything less than than winning.
1: Okay, you know, I won't put you on the spot there. That's nine, fine.
2: Nine, anything less, anything less than winning nine games is, would be a disappointment. Right. I would say
1: that, that's fine. And let me also just explain for all of the golf people out there. It was a. Um, it was supposed to be a par four on the card, but they had some issues on the course, so they had to turn it in uh, that weekend to a par three. But London was already getting the pop there. He was already getting the stroke, and he did make par for a three net two, which basically won the back nine uh, for his team. Um, but, <laughs> but but he but but. Hey, hey, boy. <laughs>
2: Go finish, finish, finish what you were saying.
1: No, just gonna say you played really, really well. I mean, you know, all uh, uh, we, London. We, we, uh, what were you a 14, 13, or fourteen, or something like that? You shot eighty or eighty-one. Uh, like I shot an eighty. Yeah, I an
2: 80. yeah. Was, you played I, well. I was playing two fourteen, and I was with a double on the last hole. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Oh yeah.
2: I, 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 I could I tell really though. Well.
1: I <laughs> could tell though. Golf right now is one of your passions, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you to Kevin. You, so you told the story about the part three. You you failed to mention. That that's really oh, oh the club. Dan we, Snyder. The Dan we, we Snyder beat story. Guys, we, beat, we, beat, we beat you guys pretty, uh, pretty handily. You in, did. In terms of just winning. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, you did. Winning, winning,
2: winning, winning. I'm not going to say how much we won, but we, you know, it's, it, it, it was, it was significant. <laughs> uh, for, for,
1: fortunately, I had some side action going that got me almost back to even. Um, but, uh, no, I thought you were going to say, so at one point during the round, the conversation of Dan Snyder comes up, as it does almost always when you're out, you know, playing golf and talking about the team. And London, and I've said this before about Cooley and about uh, Santana and Clinton, and in particular Clinton and, and, and Cooley. Cooley I did a radio show with for three years, and he's become a really close friend. And all of you guys, especially the stars of the team, always had a great relationship with the owner, with Dan. And you said something very nice about Dan and Tanya at the beginning of this conversation. And my when I made the comment, you know, that – it's, It's hard for me as a lifelong born and raised Washingtonian who's been a massive fan of this team from birth. It's hard for me now to believe that they'll ever win, you know, in a sustained fashion as long as Dan is the owner. You took offense to that. And, and you said, well, why? And I, I listed the reasons. And then, by the way, London, London was so flustered, he stepped up to the tee box and shanked one out of bounds, which we, <laughs> which we both laughed at. But no, you know, I've said this before to, to Clinton and to, to Cooley in particular. You know, you guys have a personal relationship. You know him and the family personally for us. We can only sort of evaluate the professional. And the professional has been awful over 23 years. You know, it's been as bad as any in, in all of team sports. But you came to his defense and then got a little rattled and, and drove one 40 yards right out of bounds. <laughs>
4: Every
2: now and then, I, that was more about club selection. Then, I, than yeah, I, know. About I know. conversation about that. Yeah. yeah so I know if I've known him since 07. He's always been great to me. Always been treating me great, and I wish more people knew him. You know, he allowed more people to know who who he is from a true standpoint. He doesn't do a bunch of interviews, really any interviews. So he has, that allows the media to point their, paint their own narrative of him. And you know what you read or hear is not always reality. It's not all true. I, you know, to kind of give you an example of how how Danny is as a person is uh, a couple of years ago, about two years back, right, right during the pandemic, my wife got diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer. And I probably several months had uh, passed and I, you know, uh, reached out to him, let him, let him know, you know, about my wife and what, you know, what she was going through. And I had contacted his assistant actually. And even though I, you know, I could contact him personally within, I don't know, two, three minutes, Dan was calling me, you know, hey, London, anything you need. Um, you know, my wife, his wife has gone through, um, you know, breast cancer right. um, herself. And, I mean, he's like, hey, you know, put her, let her talk to Tanya. I mean, just all of it, you know, these are doctors, you need doctors, you need, what do you need, you know, just get from that standpoint. And we've talked, you know, multiple times in text or whatever, you know, since then, and and even every time, um, you know, London, how's your wife doing? You know, just always, you know, want to know how she's doing. Can he do something for, um, for her? Um, I mean, just you know, they send us random gift baskets for no reason. This was even before the the cancer uh, diagnosis. You know, he's sending gift baskets for my kids and and myself, and you know. Um, This is even before, you know, the cash stuff. So just to give you an idea of who he is and how he's treated me and my family. And this has, I I haven't played for Washington since 2013. So this is prior to me even going back and and coming into the radio booth. So, you know, I just wish more people knew the stories of of just his generosity because the only narrative that, that is out there is you know all this stuff about hey him and ownership and meddling and all those things, and um, trust me, a lot of that is overblown. <laughs> it is, it is gr- uh, grossly overblown.
1: How's your wife
2: doing? She's doing great. She's she's cancer free. She's um you know it was tough, obviously with with just having ca- uh, breast cancer, but also with it being during the during the pandemic. So there was just that added anxiety of. Hey, you have you had to be extremely careful because her immune system was compromised sure. during you know during the chemo and everything that she went through. So, but she's she's doing great. She's cancer free, and um, you know, thank God for that.
1: And London's coaching uh, high school or middle school football down in Charlotte, middle school, yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, so, good luck with that. Have you guys had a game yet, or not, or is it uh, this coming
2: weekend? We did. We we had our we had our uh, first game a couple of days ago. We won twenty two. Fourteen. We were up twenty-two nothing, and then in the fourth quarter, the defensive coordinator—I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> you. I, 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 you know, a fourteen points, and, and I, I understand how tough it is coordinating defense. But you know, the guys—they played well, and, and we were able to to come away with the victory. We we had a shutout going through three quarters, and and uh, we were holding on to our seat of our pants at the end of that game. Was you know, the guys. I'm happy for them, and. You know, it's a lot a lot of work we still need to get done before our next game.
1: Do you wanna coach? You
2: know, I really enjoy coaching doing the coaching that I'm doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> um I I look at the the middle school level as it's great. Um my son he plays he plays J V football and I'm able to watch him play on the high school level and you know, but just the middle school level, there's there's so many guys that are just being introduced to the game, and you know just the the pureness of it and teaching. And I feel like if you can coach middle school football, you can coach anywhere. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, some guys don't don't understand. You're talking to them, and, and they have no clue of what you're saying. So it definitely challenges me to to know how to communicate with them because I can get find myself speaking in terms like I'm talking to a guy who played on a professional level or a collegiate level. With some of my terms and then i have to realize this kid has no no idea what i'm talking about so let me you know explain it to them in a manner that that where it gets through to them so i i enjoy coaching on the middle school level you never know what the future holds but i between this coaching middle school and, and being in the booth man I'm, I'm, I'm extremely uh fulfilled
1: i i think you're i think you nailed it i think first of all you know if you can coach, you can coach, um, at, at, at any level. But more importantly, when you've got that age group, you have such an impact and you can have such an impact in their, in their, what are still their formative years. And, uh, and I bet you're an outstanding coach. So good luck to the team and, uh, good luck in the booth. I appreciate you doing this. Get out of the car, get to the range. Uh, hit some balls, and go break 80 today. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it.
2: All right. As long as I win the money, I'm happy. (laughs) You
1: you were competitive. Uh, I appreciate it, London. Take care. All right,
2: thanks. All right, bye.
1: London Fletcher, everybody. I enjoyed that. I hope you did as well. Up next, some college football talk and some Serena talk, right after these words from a few of our sponsors.
3: All right, this segment of the podcast
1: is presented by my good friends at MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Bills and Rams a week from last night, full-fledged NFL weekend a week away. It's time to prepare for your winning season at MyBookie. Whether you're a veteran better or a first-timer, bookie gets you the most for your money with a double deposit bonus. It's quick. It's easy. A $250 deposit puts $500 into your account. Um, and from there, uh, you just uh, pick winners. Uh, and to help us do that, it's my good friend, Stanford Steve. Neither one of us, I think, would be described as a first-time better. Um, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be the description uh, for us. Uh, by the way, um, I gave out my first pick of the year last night. And it looked so dead in the water. I gave out Central Michigan plus 22. They were down 51 to 17. And I thought that Oklahoma State was going to run it up to 70-something. And then they scored, you know, 22 unanswered, I think, in the fourth quarter to get, you know, what turned out to be kind of a, a comfortable cover. They had the ball back, you know, down 14 at the end. Um who did you have last night? Did you, did you give anybody out? I have yet to watch I, Scott's first winner segment. I haven't watched it yet.
3: Okay. Okay. Well, it's out there for the people. Uh, it's, it's good to see we have a new winner segment, Kevin, because I'm getting tired of talking about last year and how, how well he did. <laughs> right. So uh, now he, he can't live off that one anymore, as everybody loves to, to tell him. Uh, I... Earlier in the week, I grabbed Fresno State because it was the first number I saw at 32, mm-hmm. and they won 35-7. So we didn't hit there. And then last night on Daily Wager, I took the over on um, on the Missouri um, Louisiana Tech game. That got there uh, in the fourth quarter. It didn't look good in the first quarter, but I just I think the world of Eli Drinkwitz as a, as an offensive guy. Sonny Cully going to Louisiana Tech. Yeah. I just thought defense was. Was going to be working on, but uh, good. Goodbye, you with Central Michigan. That was one I looked at, but I just couldn't pull the trigger. The MAC is always so tough to me, but McElwain. I mean, he he battled. Yeah, it was 51. They scored on like the third play of the third quarter. It's 51-15, and then McElwain. He's got his quarterback back. They have the leading rusher in the country back. Right. And Oklahoma State's still working through some things defensively with Derek Mason coming in. So uh, yeah, you got there. Central Michigan. It was. It was unbelievable. Uh, I think they scored 22 in the fourth quarter to get to there. So uh, there you go. Got to start with a win.
1: You know, what's what's interesting is the game was 7-7, and Central Michigan got the ball back there on the move. They missed a field goal. Then they got another stop, but the punt went to the one, and it turned out to be a safety, and then the floodgates opened. By the way, you mentioned this guy, um, the Central Michigan running back, Lou Nichols. He's a pro, he's yeah. a he's a pro running back. I mean, I, last yep. night was my first night watching him. I knew he was really good last year, and I knew they had the quarterback and Nichols coming back uh, off a high octane offensive team last year, which is why I thought they could score some points and cover. Plus, the public w- was on the other side on on the 11th ranked team in the country. But the kid, uh, people who are listening, Lou Nichols, Central Michigan. Um, he's only a sophomore. But he—that's a pro back, I think.
3: Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, Mack the coach. People know him from you know Alabama offensive coordinator, yep. Colorado State coach, yep. Florida. He he still knows what he's doing on offense. So uh, that yeah. was a nice one for the Mac.
1: Um, all right. Uh, I I, I want to. We're talking college football. We will get back to the betting portion of this conversation um, to see who you know Steve likes, but. I want to just start overall with the state of college football right now and a lot of what's happened over the last month plus with – you know, UCLA and USC to the Big Ten and all of the discussion about what's coming next. And then even yesterday, um, you know, this this meeting among the sports, you know, higher-ups about potentially expediting an expanded college football playoff, maybe to 12 teams by 2024. I think they'd be nuts if they don't do that. And maybe by the time some of you listen to this, it's already been done. But what, you know, as someone like me, we both love this sport so much. Where do you see it going? What does it look like three, four years from now?
3: Well, I think the idea of everything, uh, Kevin, is, is, is it's after this offseason, it's been pretty negative. The talk as a whole around the sport, whether it's NIL and how the hell are, is this kid going to this school and it's all hush-hush and you know the old school gets mad because you know, you know, terms of a financial agreement were made with NIL and then the, you know, the transfer portal alone, uh, UCLA and SC, you know, coming out of nowhere, uh, coaches leaving big-time schools and those schools feeling pretty hurt. And, you know, by those guys leaving to take other jobs, and when I talk about that, I mean Notre Dame and Oklahoma, and then those schools having a tough time and then absolutely just jumping all in after they get their head coach for a little while. So I think the the powers that be need to make this happen and get a positive going. And I thought it was pretty ironic that this story comes out the day of the season. Right. And because you're going to get a person like me, that when it comes down to everything in the sport, I want to talk about the games. I'll let all that stuff shake out. Um, there's people that know things, and so you know, and moves are made before you know it happens. So. I, I, I leave all that to the powers that be, and now we got games on it. So I, I, I do think it was kind of funny that, that that story came out yesterday on the first day of games. Uh, but I will believe it when everybody starts an, a, agreeing, uh, and I'm talking about that with the, with the commissioners of the conference. They, they have to get on the same page. I know the presidents are meeting, but the, the ADs and the commissioners are the people that get the balls rolling. The presidents, I think, are just want to see some numbers. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, I, I could only see this going at 12.
1: Uh, by the way, let me just make sure that I properly introduce um, Stanford Steve because I didn't do that. We just got, kind of got into the conversation. Of course, uh, Stanford Steve is a big part of Scott's Sports Center. Uh, he does the podcast with the Bear um, uh, on ESPN, ESPN.com, um, and so much of his college football uh, musings and wagers – uh, are all there at ESPN.com? Plus, he's a big part of the nightly show, the Daily Wager uh, on ESPN or one of the ESPN uh, stations um, at Stanford. Steve eighty-two. So, you know, I agree with you. Like, I like. It's not a comparison here necessarily, but I can't. I, I have to talk about the NFL preseason and training yeah. camp. But to me, it's so dreadful to watch. And I just want the real games to come because I like talking like you do. I like watching and then talking about games, like real games, (laughs) you know, not roster spots, 48 through 53 (laughs) and obsessing over, over that stuff. But, you know, with that said, I I had Bruce Feldman um, on the show, I don't know, maybe a month ago. And I asked him the Uh following question and we'll do this just one more question and then we'll move on to to the season and the games. I said, do you think that, college football has gotten over its skis and they're not seeing the forest for the trees that they're actually all of this, you know, conference reshuffling and the possibility of a super conference that eventually nobody's thinking about the product itself and that the product is, you know, Saturdays and conference rivalries and traditions. And I know things change. I'm not trying to be the old man, get off your lawn guy, but that ultimately, all of this stuff could could really end up hurting the sport that you and I and so many others love.
3: Yeah, uh, I, I, for sure. Um, I, I believe so because when you look at it, Kevin, it's it's broken down in so many different parts. You know, I talked about the presidents going to meet about this playoff, and you got your commissioners that just want their conference to get in that playoff knowing the money's at stake and get in those bowl games to, to make sure their their schools are taken care of financially. And then you go down even further. The ADs just want that image to be good of their school. And then you go down even farther to the people that I talk to, and that's the, like the assistant coaches in this. And those guys were just counting down the days to the season starting and getting in camp because – it's turned into an everyday job, whether it's NIL or transfers. Those guys are immersed every single day, not only going out and recruiting new players to their team that are in high school, but now you got guys in a player development program. They talk about where, you know, Hey, who's from this area? Um, you know, that, that left to go to school and might not be starting and, and wants to come back home possibly. And then, you know, uh, you know, your own battles. It, 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 on your roster because I think it's pretty eye-opening what Lane Kiffin's doing at quarterback and what Jim Harbaugh's doing at quarterback because I think they're scared to death to lose a quarterback. And what's going to happen, this kid's going to get named a starter, he's going to be able to put QB1 on his Instagram and his Twitter page, and then the other guy's going to start looking to go other places. So it is an everyday deal um, when you talk to these assistant coaches. And I know – they are, in it, But like when you go down the ladder, look how far they are from the people that are actually ultimately going to make this decision. That's where I think it's a scary thing because these people are in it every day. They know what's going on. The people at the top are just you know throwing numbers around and, and seeing if everything will work there. So I do feel like there is a, a disconnect when you look at the tiers of people involved in the sport.
1: All right, let's talk about the season, and then we'll get to this first weekend. Um, Last year, you know, we did have Cincinnati and Michigan into the the playoff, you know, two new entrants to go with Alabama and Georgia. Do you see this season being back to a lot of haves, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, and then a lot of have-nots? Is there a big difference between, well, especially Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, and everybody else?
3: Yes, um... I believe it was, last year I did the same spot for you the day the season started, and I talked about there was opportunity for other teams because I thought last year was the time to get Alabama, to get Clemson, to get Ohio State because of the youth at quarterback. Right. And, and, you know, it ended up opening up. You know, Cincinnati took advantage of their opportunity. Michigan finally beat that door down and, and got the job done. And now, when I look at everything in its totality, in this Power Five deal, and even in, in the non-Power Five, I, I, I think it's going to be really tough. Uh, I still think Clemson has work to do, even though their defensive line is the best unit in the whole sport. Uh, you know, they got a local kid in percy in on that D line. I think those four guys might be better than the team that won national championships. I real uh, no Clemson. No, you know, I'm saying. Do you think? Do you think stuff.
1: it's better? Uh, 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 you're saying their defensive front. Yes. Is it better yes. than what Georgia yes. had defensively last year? Because yes. I thought that was one of the best defenses we've ever seen in college football.
3: Yes, I'm talking about the front four. Clemson yeah. is is better. Okay. The front four is better. Cle- the pro- I'll get to Georgia, but uh, I, I. But that that defensive line is going to keep them in games in that conference, and their schedule I think is doable. But I looked at Ohio State, Georgia, and Alabama as teams that are playoff-worthy. And so that leaves one spot. And I keep going back and forth. I played in the Pac-12. The perception of the conference is as bad as it could be. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about Utah, Florida. That's why it's a monster game. Right. But I look at UCLA, Kevin. I, I see a road there because this is something that Chip, Chip Kelly thrives in. He, everybody's talking about USC. Utah is a top-ten team. Oregon is a top-ten team. You know, and UCLA is just waiting in their wings. When you go down their roster, they got 21 guys that have already graduated. Twenty of those guys are in graduate school. He brings his quarterback, his running back back. He did a great job in the transfer portal of getting guys. They got a ton of depth on defense. They don't play anybody in the non-conference. And they get Utah at home. They got to go to Oregon. And then they get uh, USC at home. So a team off the path, uh, because I think the Big 12 is going to beat each other up. I think the ACC is way better than people are giving it credit for, and that's why I think a a, a one-loss or even undefeated UCLA team would beat a a two-loss ACC team. Uh, So when you look at that top tier, I do think Alabama and Ohio State are there, and I think Georgia, talking to people around the program, they are revved up to show what they got. And what people aren't going to understand – you know, the average fan, you know, when they turn that game on tomorrow with Georgia, is number 88 Jerron Carter, who I think is the best defensive lineman possibly in the country, is going to jog back out in the field for Georgia. And people are going to be like, wait a minute, that guy wasn't one of the 15 guys
4: <laughs> drafted, drafted off that yeah.
3: Georgia defense? <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be a whirlwind for people, I think, when they see Georgia and see how many guys are back because they played so many guys because they, were, they buried so many teams. So I think Georgia has the goods, and obviously um, the quarterbacks for Ohio State and, and Alabama are pretty special, let alone those rosters. So I think it's those three. I think there's a spot for one, and I- I'm willing to take a shot with UCLA. For wow. That final spot.
1: I mean, UCLA, that is way off the grid. I mean, they're not even yeah. ranked. I mean, they barely no. got votes. Nope. Uh, yeah, I, I-, I think – I,
3: I I really like I like the. Do they I still the have the, the Dorian
1: Robinson the uh, hyphenated yep. last name guy at quarterback?
3: Dorian Thompson Robinson is there, and if people, you know, Dylan Gabriel, who's one of my favorite, it's my favorite quarterback in college football. He was at UCF. He committed to transfer to UCLA the day he got on campus. An Oklahoma named Jeff Levy, who was his offense coordinator at UCF. The offense coordinator in Norman, and he got Dylan Gabriel to leave UCLA a day on campus and and go to Oklahoma. So I I loved him even more then. Obviously, uh, DTR has has plenty of experience, uh, but when you go up and down that offensive line and defensive line and the depth that Chip Kelly's been able to do with transfers and recruiting, uh, I, I see a path there. I really do, and wow. I I, love, I can't wait
1: uh, to watch them this year. Uh, they, again, I, I was just looking, I pulled up their schedule. They've got a very weak non-conference schedule, bowling green, yeah. Alabama state, South Alabama, three home games to start. Uh-huh. As you mentioned, Utah and Southern Cal, the two highest ranked PAC 12 teams and Utah opens in the swamp, yep. uh, tomorrow night, uh, at yeah. Florida, which I think is one of the real uh, great first uh, weekend games. Um, they had, they go to Eugene, they play at Oregon. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, that's really uh, so. I that leads to my next question, which was going to be: Give me your best over uh, win total over bets for the season, and your best uh, under win total bets for the season. What was what's UCLA's number?
3: Eight and a half. Oh eight man. and a half all over all over that under. I, I think they oh, won. You I mean over ten games?
1: Yeah, over. Sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry,
3: over UCLA. I also. I also like Washington State out in the Pac-12 because when I look at the Pac-12 and watch it as much as I do, for the first time in a while, they have four good above-average teams that I think possibly, you know, could be double-digit win teams, and that's UCLA, USC, Utah, and Oregon. But the rest of the conference, I have no idea. And when I look at Washington State, they got got a, a huge test at Wisconsin. I don't expect them to win at Wisconsin next week. But they have this quarterback, Cameron Ward, who's from Incarnate Ward uh, in Texas. And what they did at Washington State was bring him, a la what Western Kentucky did last year with Bailey Zappi and Kitley. They brought the quarterback and the offensive coordinator, and then they brought guys from that school. And if you go back and look at Cameron Ward's numbers, they're fantastic. And you got to see this guy. He's he's a big dude. He's about 6'4", 220. He can run and he, he's a better thrower than you would think, you know, as you see him. So I, I look at in a conference where there's there's winnable games in the North teams in that Pac twelve are not good. You got three first year head coaches. Stanford has not been the same since COVID. Cal is, is is not good offensively and they lost their best defensive player before the start of the year. So I think Washington State, their number's five and a half. I love that over. I also like South Carolina's over at and then for an under, I I took um, Indiana under four and a half. I just think that the 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 portal and way it's worked, they didn't win a conference game last year. Right. You know, and I think everybody everybody in the Big Ten East got better this year. I, everybody, and I, I'm probably not Michigan, but I think everybody's better than they were. So I think it's going to be tough for them to win another uh, conference game. Um, so I, I looked at Indiana under four and a half. I also on under Wisconsin nine. I think those other teams. I know Nebraska did what they did, but look at what Northwestern did. Uh, they're, they're improved, and uh, so I, I look at those two unders. I think nine. I mean, you got to get ten to beat me. I just don't see that offense. You know, uh, making that much improvement. So those are two unders. Uh, actually, two big 10-unders Do you um, that do, I like.
1: Do you like Brett Bielma's chances to turn Illinois back into a, a legitimate uh, you know, f- football program?
3: I, I meant to mention them. I love Illinois this year. Uh, going back and watching the tape from last week, I had them last week. That was my one pick uh, against Wyoming, who's not good. But when I look at Illinois and... We could move to this week because I know that the money's been all over the place on this game yeah. against Indiana, yeah. and I'm, it's fishy to me. I, I, I'm sticking with Illinois, even though the numbers say not to uh, because of the line movement, but I don't think they should be an underdog in this game, and they got a new offensive coordinator. They brought this guy, Barry Lunny Jr., in, who was the offensive coordinator of UTSA last year mm-hmm. in San Antonio, and if you go back and look, at, they, they tore it up last year. Uh, they won Conference USA, um, and they 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 put some serious numbers up. And when I watched Illinois back last week, I think having a game under their belt with the guys they have, they got an elite running back in Chase Brown. Like this kid is a monster, whether you split him out of the backfield, you know, run routes with him out of the backfield or just give the ball to him. He's electric, and I love uh, they got a couple transfers, that wide receiver. I love their tight ends. And having a game under their system where they could fix some things and haven't done it in a game situation, I think that's a huge advantage uh, as opposed to Indiana, who starts their season with a conference game. So that's why I'm sticking with uh, Illinois. I think DeVito, DeVito uh, the transfer from Syracuse, is a capable yeah. quarterback. Uh, so Better I, than I, and the Satinsky guy. Defense, yeah. right. The guy they had
1: last yeah, year stuff. Yeah, Sikowski. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yep. I, uh, I I like them too. I've always liked Bielma as a coach. I was actually kind yep. of surprised that he did not get it done at Arkansas. I I, I felt like that was going to be a good fit, um, and I and I I'm surprised at that. I that's one of the games I like. It just doesn't fit the smell test yeah. kind of because the action's kind of all <laughs> over the place on the game. But I think Illinois yeah. is going to crush Indiana yeah. tonight, um, and that, that that there's a chance they could be uh you know a, a pretty good team. So let me just make sure I have this straight. Over UCLA, over Washington State, over South Carolina, you like uh Indiana yep. under. Um, you kind of I don't know what the Illinois number is. What's the Illinois number?
3: Illinois. I have the Illinois over. It's four and a half.
1: Yeah, so so you got them over four and a half. Anybody yep. else that I missed?
3: Uh
1: what do you think about Clemson's uh, 10 and a half? I'm just not a fan of, of the quarterback.
3: I, I'm with you, and everything I hear and read out of there, Kevin, is they're ready to make the move a la Trevor Lawrence with this kid, Klubnick, who's a Texas kid, uh-huh. who everybody raves about. But I don't think Clemson's going to struggle enough offensively where Davo can make that move. Uh, so, I, I think the schedule is formidable. I, I really like NC, NC State. I saw early this offseason had a number of eight. I think they win ten games. Uh, and then uh, the other wild card in that conference, too, uh, to me, were Pitt and Miami. Uh, we saw Pitt last night, obviously. Yep. I think, you know, they learned a lot about themselves, knowing what they lost in Pickett and Addison. Uh, and they got a fascinating game next week against Tennessee, who looked apart last night against an undermanned Ball State team, uh, and then I look at Miami. Uh, Cristobal did an unbelievable job, as he does, you know, getting that roster ready. Um, I'm actually going uh, to their game in two weeks at College Station, uh, which I'm fired up for because that's another team. I'm ju- I, that's that's the thing Kevin, with this with the portal. I'm just dying to see these new guys in their new uniforms. You know, I think of Oklahoma. Like Brett Venable says, they have 50 guys who've never put on an Oklahoma uniform, whether it's transfers or recruits. Yeah. like I just I need I need to see these big-name teams with what they're bringing to the table. So uh, I look at the ACC. I'm trying to think of other teams. I, I, I'm not a believer in North Carolina. I wasn't before the season, and I think they're in a tough spot. They're, be,
1: an, they're an underdog. After watching
3: what, yeah, with what the floor name M did to their secondary. So uh, NC State's a team I got my eye on. I almost picked them to go to the playoff. I think they could go. To Clemson and beat them uh, because they have they have a really really good defense and they bring back everybody they bring back two guys who were all league that didn't even play last year because of injuries and when you get into it and you know going they got to go to Clemson I think at the end of the month uh, but that defense is going to travel and I think Devin Leary is a legit quarterback I'm not as high on him as his coaches that he's the best quarterback in college football but when I go back and watch him in two minute situations and when you need something done that could get it done man so i have my eyes on nc state I, I do believe the hype that's surrounding them
1: okay um let's talk about some players uh right now yeah. you, your your best bet for the number one pick in the draft next year and let's just assume Ooh. it's a team that doesn't have a quarterback is it Stroud, is it Young, or could it be Will Anderson, who is, you know, by all accounts, the best defensive edge pass rusher in college football and the best pro prospect as well?
3: Uh, I, th- I think he's the best player in the sport, without a doubt. I, I don't see how anyone uh, is not going to take him. Because when I look at the sport, or, you know, the, the sport this year, I'm trying to go down and find, like, no, I thought the Jets got a great, uh, did a good job in getting players that are going to play right away you know, out of the draft this year. Uh, I mean, and I do that because that kid Jermaine Johnson, who was a Georgia kid, and he went to Florida State and had an unbelievable year last year. There's not a lot of elite pass rushers in college football this year. And so when I think about that and I think about offensive lines and what they got to do, there's not a lot of guys where you got to get totally game-planned for. Will Anderson is, is that guy. I mean, he is an absolute game wrecker. He has every, you know, pass rushing move in the book. He's as stout as there are against the run. He'll take on double teams. Uh, he's he's smart. You can't really screen him, uh, you know, when, when if you want to let him, you know, free, let him have a free release to the quarterback and throw the ball behind him. He's smart enough. He's seen everything. Uh, so I, I think he's in his own tier when it comes to players in the sport uh, from an overall that has every... Tool you want for the next level, Will Anderson's that guy. All
1: right, but let's just say, as an example, the Falcons end up having the first pick, uh, and they're going to uh-huh. take and they're, they're going to take a quarterback. Is it Stroud or Young?
3: Yep. Ooh, um, probably Stroud, because I still think Bryce Young's size is going to be a factor. Uh, I, I don't think. I uh, was actually talking about Chris, to Chris Long about this yesterday. Well, who's the comp for Bryce Young and being on the field for the national championship last year? I was blown away at how not tall he is. Yeah, he's five uh, eleven. Right? on the other side, no, no way, no way is he five eleven. I don't see it. Uh, but I, I think he's more than. Meaning, two you three think he's model. like five
1: nine or five ten?
3: I think he's five ten at the most. Mm-hmm. At the most. And I think he's, but he's 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 got that that it where he can wait till the last second with pressure in his face, and he gets he anticipates throws. And when I say that is he throws receivers open. So if guys, you know, even on a crossing route, he's gonna throw it a little deeper where it's over that defensive back. And you can't teach those things. And that's like when I look at the next level, I know you know, the Eagles are getting all this hype. I think we've seen the ceiling of Jalen Hurts uh, throwing because he doesn't anticipate throws. And that's what gets him into trouble. And I think that's one thing you need at the next level is, is giving those guys a shot. Where can I throw this ball? Where my my receivers? The only guy that could catch it. Bryce Young is as good as I've ever seen, especially as a freshman uh, doing that stuff last year. And, you know, people want to go back and, you know, they almost lost the iron ball. What he did late in that game is still incredible to me on yeah. the road. Freshman, you lose your best receive, uh, best two receivers, um, and, and and still be able to pull that game out. He's special, uh, but I think Stroud, um, and I know everybody you know around here wants to talk about the idea of Ohio State quarterbacks not working out in the, in the NFL, uh, but I, I think Stroud, Stroud's a different animal, and I think um, Ryan Day knows that, and uh, he's got a special guy there. So I I think Stroud will be the first one, the guy who I'm not going to give up on. It's Jake Hayner uh, at Fresno State. Right. I absolutely love that kid, and he's gonna. They got a chance to beat USC early this year. Uh, I think Hayner's only going to climb. Now he's a six-year guy, but when you talk about having experience and wanting all the all the stuff that you need in a quarterback, you know, as far as getting looks and seeing everything in the college game, Jake Hayner's seen everything. So I think he's the guy that's only going to climb up the board.
1: All right, before we get well, okay, uh, one last thing between Stroud and Young. Who wins the Heisman? Ooh. Uh,
3: (laughs) I think there's going to be Alabama fatigue. I think this Will Anderson hype is going to get momentum. It's going to hurt Bryce Young's chances. Mm. Uh, And I also think the kid they got from Georgia Tech, Jameer Gibbs, I think Alabama's going to run the ball a little bit more. I still think they got a lot of proving to do with their wideouts. Uh, So I think Jameer Gibbs is going to take a lot of the limelight away too because Bryce Young's going to throw the ball to him out of the backfield. Uh, and I think Travion Henderson is going to take things away from Stroud. So, like, I went down. I, You know, RG3 and Tebow won the Heisman with three losses. And that's, that's the problem with this award is it's been attached to winning so much. And I took a shot uh, when the Heisman odds came out with Dylan Gabriel because I think he's going to put up absolutely ludicrous numbers in Oklahoma. In that system. So I think it's, I take a shot with what him. Did,
1: what did you get Gabriel um, at? What what were the odds?
3: I have him at 30, 38 to 1. Wow. So, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's tough. Like I said, I, keep, I want to see everything. The, the problem with running back, like you got B. John Robinson, who's phenomenal. I mean, Travion mentioned Henderson. Kidd. Uh, Travion Henderson. I think Will Shipley at Clemson is going to have a monster year, but they have too many running backs. Like they have, they got four running backs that could start anywhere in the country. Uh, does one of the A and M skill guys break out? You know, out west, does, does Caleb Williams do the do everything and, and do they win enough games? I'm not. I don't think they do uh, because he's going to be strictly attached to how many games they win. When you talk about perception, and then that's how these narratives get started. Uh, that, that's what I look at there. I don't think there's anybody in the Big Twelve. Uh, like I said, I think that that conference is going to be. I think they're all good teams. Caleb Williams, Caleb up, Williams
1: so. with 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 Lincoln Riley and whatever SC. That's that's a possibility.
3: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it is. Uh, but I, like I said, I think they're going to be attached to winning. If they if they lose to like Fresno State or somebody early, he's going to go way way down the list.
1: All right. Uh, let's talk about this weekend. Um, who do you like?
3: Yeah. Uh I lo- I like Illinois. Uh, I have them I <laughs> you'll love this one um, we just talked about FC I just have to take the 32 and a half of rice I just I just have to because there's not gonna be another opportunity <laughs> to take rice
1: didn't you have rice several times last year or am I thinking of somebody else
3: uh, I had them a couple of years ago when everybody and their mother, had army to open the season okay. they were catching a bunch and they yeah. almost won uh but i just i they're in a total contrast of styles. and why i don't like usc this year is like they legitimately have six guys on the offensive line and once they lose one of those guys they're 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 to walk on and that's that's something that you don't talk about uh that's gonna happen so um i look at them and uh yeah it's 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 tough uh i like Oklahoma to come out and jumpstart UTEP. I just need UTEP to score like 10 Um, (laughs) because I like the over there. I think it's only 50 – it's in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, 58 maybe. Right. So Uh, so I like that over.
1: You're you're doing the – you know, trying to cover a 30-point favorite and keep the game under 50. I remember a a few years ago, Bama was playing somebody. They were a 41-point favorite, and the total was 43. And and I think I said, well, that just reeks. And so I took Bama and the under, and it was 42 to nothing. I, I don't think I, – I may not have gotten the numbers of the, or, or the actual game right, but it was – my buddy Steve Solomon and I were both sitting in our bullpen at the radio station, and he just looked at me and he said, Bama's a 41-point favorite, and the total's 43. And I said, let's take the favorite and the under and see if we can thread the needle. And it worked. Um <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's always tough, right? When you've got a massive favorite, you're also rooting for the under. Uh, all right, so who else?
3: Uh, I like Louisville, even though I don't like giving points on the road. And I'm taking a shot with Rutgers on the road catching seven. I don't think BC's that that firepower heavy. And I think Rutgers do enough to muck it up and and, and make it ugly. So I'll take the seven there.
1: At Stanford Steve 82 on Twitter, he gave you UCLA as the fourth playoff team after Bama, Georgia, (laughs) and the Buckeyes. Uh, That's the first I've heard about the Bruins um, in a Final Four run. Thanks for doing this. Uh, I appreciate it. We'll do it again soon.
3: Thanks, brother. I appreciate you.
1: Stanford Steve, everybody, with UCLA as one of his final four picks. Wow, have not heard that a lot. Uh, I wanted to mention, because we haven't talked about them yet, Maryland opens tomorrow at noon in College Park against Buffalo. The Terps are 24-and-a-half point favorites now. That line has gone up. Um, I think they're going to crush Buffalo to get their seasons uh, off to a good start. This is Mike Loxley's best team. Uh, at Maryland, if you missed my conversation with Mike Loxley, uh, it's from the August twenty seventh uh, show last Saturday. Put out a show. Uh, I think we had Ben Standing on the show, and then there was a conversation that I had with Mike Loxley, which was a part of that show as well. If you didn't, for you Terp fans, if you didn't listen to that, go back. Uh, go to the Kevin Sheehan uh, click on Past Episodes, and click on the Are They Ready or Not episode. It's a shorter episode from last Saturday, and uh, you can hear my conversation with Mike Loxley. But I think the Terps have a chance to win seven games this year, maybe eight. You know, they've got a very difficult schedule. Um, as Mike pointed out last week, probably the third or fourth toughest schedule in the country. Uh, the Terps have. Uh, that's part of the problem. Um, they're in that Big Ten East, but even beyond just being in the Big Ten East, they play out of the Big Ten West at Wisconsin and Purdue, who's good this year. We saw them last night. They also play Northwestern. I don't know what kind of North uh, team Northwestern has. Their three non-conference games start tomorrow. Buffalo, then they're at Charlotte. Those should be two easy wins, and then they get SMU uh, in College Park for uh, a nationally televised game on September 17th. Uh, but still, the terps will be solid favorites, heavy favorites in the first two games, including you know being 24 and a half point favorites tomorrow against Buffalo. They'll be a big favorite against Charlotte next week and they'll be a favorite more likely than not against SMU, maybe a slight favorite um but they've got a chance to start off 3 and 0 and maybe get some recognition nationally before they go to the go to the big house on September 24th to face Michigan. They are loaded offensively at the skill position players. They really are. They've got an improved offensive line as well. Maryland should be one of the best offensive teams not only in the Big 10, but they should be one of the more explosive teams in the country. Offensively. Again, the competition is the problem. You know, Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, Michigan State, Michigan, Purdue this year. You know, they could be a much improved team and the best team that Loxley's had and still end up struggling to be bowl eligible. But I think. You know, with Copeland, with Demas, with Jarrett, with Jones, with some of the backs, um, with some of the offensive linemen. They've got a, you know, they, they got a pro prospect up front as well. Um, and with Leah Tungavailoa uh, coming off the finish that he had last year, which was an incredible finish against Rutgers, and then just a flawless bowl, uh, bowl game against Virginia Tech when they beat the Hokies 54-10. to I think Maryland's got a chance to win seven-plus games this year. So uh, good luck to them. Uh, I'm into that, as most of you know. I'll be watching tomorrow. I'm not going to go to the game tomorrow. I think I'm going to go to that SMU game uh, in two weeks. Well, one of the most exciting things going on in sports, even though this is the first college football weekend of the year, and the NFL opens up on Thursday with the Bills and the Rams. But Serena's uh, first uh, two wins at the U.S. Open have been uh, incredible to watch and my good friend Mark Stern was there why was he there well he's got a podcast called Courtside uh, at the U.S. Open you can get it anywhere you get a podcast Mark of course was the producer of uh, the Sports Fix with yours truly and Tom Lavero for seven and a half years and he is a major part of the Tony Kornheiser show as its producer uh and uh and Nigel voice um so you and I both, I mean I don't know how many times over the years we've had these just obscure <laughs> tennis conversations and people will walk by us and go, "What are you guys talking about?" Um and you know and you know that I don't love the sport as much as I used to. You still do. You're right. working in the sport. Um let's just start with this. You you've been there for the fir, the first two Serena matches I, mm-hmm. What was it like to be there? The electricity was popping through the TV.
4: Uh, well, then it, then it conveyed it very accurately, what it was like. I mean, it's loud. I mean, first of all, it's a night session at the U.S. Open with this fantastic New York crowd. And so it's very boisterous. And, every, I mean, it's, it's packed. There's an electricity to it. And it really, Kevin, had the feel of a championship match. You know, and we, it was that sort of anticipation and the way everyone was hanging on every point. And, and it's funny because, as loud as it was on Monday night when, when Serena played for the first time and she came out to this thunderous applause and everybody's on their feet, it wasn't really going the way the people wanted it to go. And then it was deathly silent because everyone's like, oh no, is this going to be it? Is this going to be the farewell tour? And then, and listen. I was among those people that thought there's a really good chance that she could lose in the first round, just based on what we had seen from her in the few matches leading up to this. She hadn't looked sharp. She hadn't looked like she was moving well. And then she turned it around and, and she was pulled together and was terrific. And, and, and the crowd just erupted and it really has been something special. And then, and again, I don't know how much of the post-match ceremony you watch with Gail King hosting and Oprah Winfrey had narrated something. And it was, like, sometimes I look at those and I'm like, all right, this is a little maudlin, this is a little too much, right. but that, that night, it was pretty cool, and it was one of those things we kind of looked around and you said, I'm really glad I'm, I'm not just watching this, but I'm here on site to sort of feel the vibes for it, and actually, by the time the match ended, I had left, and I, I was sitting next to Zena Garrison watching that because I interviewed her for, for the show right after that ceremony, and I knew that she had a relationship with Serena, but I didn't know that she basically known Serena since Serena was like eight years old. Wow! So it was really it was really cool to sort of share that moment with Zena, who's you know, I mean, a tremendous career in her own right, you know, a, you know, terrific runs, and and really broke a lot of barriers. So it was kind of cool to share that moment with her and then talk about it afterwards. So it, it's. It's just been really cool.
1: I said something to Tommy on the podcast yesterday, and I and this was not meant to be, you know, a shot at women's sports at all. But watching on Monday night and then on Wednesday night, and I'll be watching again tonight. Um, I can't think of a women's sporting event that had the raucous atmosphere, and like you said. You and I have both been a huge fan of the U.S. Open night matches over the years. I mean, you know, go back to, you know, the Connors run in 91. The, 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 you know, he, he the, yeah. fr- his first match against Patrick McEnroe in the first round when he was down two sets and a break in the third yeah. ended at yeah. like 2 a.m. Crazy. in the morning. The Harhus match, the Crickstein yeah. match, you know, we, we the, oh, the, yeah. the Agassi-Sampras quarterfinal on a Thursday night back in – 2001 or 2 or whatever year it was. I mean, and it's been a while since you've had that kind of atmosphere. No offense to, to, to Roger and Nadal and Djokovic, but it just nobody riled up that crowd like Connors did. Or McEnroe did, or then Agassi in his comeback years. I felt the other night may have been one of the most intense, bloodthirsty, you know, one-sided crowds for a player rooting for a player for a women's uh, uh, athlete that I've ever seen. I couldn't come up with a comp for it.
4: No, I, I think you're right. I think you hit it on the head. And and you know, there's a part of it that you love it. Because you're there and you're just, I mean, again, you sort of feed off the crowd. I know Serena's feeding off the crowd because, you know, everybody's willing to win every single match. And, again, because it's New York, where I was sitting in my studio, I don't know if this came through in the audio and the TV broadcast, but I was thinking I was at a Yankee game. Because every, like, every, like, five minutes, this one guy just kept shouting out, let's go, Serena! <laughs> right. Just, like, you know, yeah. it was, like, it was and, and then at some point, though, you sort of started to feel bad for Annette be Contivate because, you know, it, like, she gets a double fault, and everybody's cheering, and it's like, okay, maybe, maybe that's not that cool. And, and it, it clearly affected her. And, you know, she talked about it in a post-match conference, and it was, you know, it's, it's a tough moment when... You're playing one of the greats of all time, even if she's not what she used to be. She's still a terrific player, obviously. But you're playing just thousands of people in a packed house. that's just rocking at Ash. It's it's a really it's a tough environment. It sure is. Uh,
1: I mean, and good God, the celebrities were out in uh, mass um, for that one. I, <laughs> yeah, what what yeah. were the t- what, what were the tickets going for Monday night? I mean, it was outrageous, right?
4: I don't know specifically. Um, but I did hear this as I was walking through the grounds. Was there was this sort of obnoxious guy right at the gate, and all I heard him say, because you, I, I guess he couldn't get in, and all I heard him say was like, "Look, I paid a thousand dollars for these tickets. You're going to let me in right now." So, so I know at least it was a grand, but I, I'm I'm sure for something down close, they had to be going for. I mean, just a premium price. I mean, and, and again. This is a huge stadium, right? And there was not one seat open. And even last night for the doubles, and and by the way, Kevin, when was the last time you saw a doubles match in the first week? You know, U.S. Open, like
2: in prime time at seven
4: o'clock? Never. Yeah, yeah, you never see it. And again, it was a packed house, and that didn't go the way people wanted it to. But it was still so much fun. It is doubles is a lot of fun to watch for people that don't check it out a lot. It was it was a really entertaining match.
1: Right. Mark Stern is joining us. He has a podcast courtside at the U.S. Open. Uh, he is there covering the entire tournament up in Flushing Meadow. Uh, listen to the podcast wherever you get a podcast. So obviously the question, and I kind of felt like you did before this started, you know, you know, I'm a Serena fan and you haven't been as much of a Serena fan as I've been um, over the years. But I felt the way you did, which is this is going to end early and that Monday night was potentially going to be it. Now that she's won two matches and beat the number two player, uh, number two seed in this tournament, uh, what are her chances to to go super deep?
4: Well, I think her chances are, are looking good, um, particularly in this next match. She's playing Isla Tamjanovic, uh, who is a lot like Anna Contivate in that, she stays back on the baseline. She's a big hitter, which Serena at this stage of her career really likes because if you're sending the ball with pace at her, she can fire it back. It, it's harder for her to sort of generate that that the, the tremendous pace that she had in her younger years. Um, and and not somebody that's going to really dictate terms to, to Serena, move her around a lot, you know, hit slice shots and kind of throw the timing off or hit drop shots. And I think that all sort of plays into Serena's hands. Um, so I think she's got a great shot to make it into the fourth round. Um, I, I think there's one potential match, and it would either be a fourth-round match or a quarterfinal match. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. But the number five seed on is yeah. um If it plays out like that, because she's really talented, she's been playing really well this year, that could be a really stiff challenge for Serena. But the other thing is, and I said this a bunch not with you specifically, but a bunch before the tournament was like, look, I don't think she I think she's a good chance she's gonna lose in the first round. But if she starts to win and she wins a couple of matches, she gets a little momentum and that confidence and that swagger back, then there's no telling how far she could go. And it, it to be honest with you, it's a really wide open field as it kinda of tends to be these days with the women's side of things. So there is definitely a good chance that she could actually win this whole tournament. Like that's not out of the realm of possibility at all.
1: Yeah. And she, you know, each one of these matches, you know, she's not going to play. Well, actually maybe Sunday, she might play a late afternoon match if she wins tonight. Cause sometimes I think the Sunday match, weekend matches do better during the day. I don't know. I could be wrong about that. Um, but she's going to have home court advantage. Like, like nobody's oh, oh yeah. had. Oh, yeah, um, And, uh and that's going to be um it's going to be interesting to watch. You know, I I I also said to Tommy yesterday. I said if she were to win this tournament as much as much as as she has talked about, you know, and everybody assumes based on, you know, the uh what was it the Vogue uh story. Uh, yeah,
4: the Vogue, yeah, the, yeah, the Vogue story, yeah. Uh,
1: that that this is it, you know, for her you know, she said after the match the other night, I thought it was interesting. She said, you know, the results didn't match how well I was playing in practice, you know, earlier in the summer. And if yeah. she gets it going here and she wins here, you know, it would be kind of hard after this, the farewellish kind of tone to this whole first week and, and what it would be next week for her to continue to play. But I, I kind of have this sense that if she wins, she's, she's going to want to continue to compete. What do you think?
4: Well, I think there's definitely a large part of her that won't want to hang it up because she doesn't really want to hang it up now. She loves playing, and, and she's, she's a fierce competitor, and she wants to win. And, she, you know, I mean, she doesn't want to get off the court. This is something she really loves. The only thing I would push back against that, and she did sort of leave it open, and she never really definitively said, right. I'm retiring after after the tournament. But when Gail King was interviewing her in that post-match ceremony on Monday, Gail King kind of, like, asked her about that and said, you know, are you going to keep going? And, then, and she pretty definitively, in my mind, said at that point, no, 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 this is it. You know, so, but you win, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, it's not etched in stone. But I I kind of agree with you. First of all, it would be weird to have the big farewell and then keep it going. And I always, and I think so many people look back on this, it's like, you know, John Elway had that great, you know, ending to his Hollywood story. You know, you win and you ride off into the sunset. And I think there's something, there's a lot to be said for that, to going out on top. You know, you'd, you'd rather have that. Then come back and lose in like the first round of Wimbledon again next year, or come back here and lose in the first round. It, you know, it kind of it kind of sullies the moment. So for me, if she were to win, it would just be such an incredible story. I don't think you can do anything better than that. And and for me, not that I have any idea of how it feel to be a champion like Serena, I would ride out at that point and say, "That's it, I'm going out on top."
1: Um, real quickly, on the men's side, Nadal got through last night, um, but do, do you do you agree? <laughs> I know. Yeah, that, it was roughy. That was
4: scary. I mean, if people just look at the final score, like, oh, he won in four sets. He knocked there
1: himself a out There was point almost. in that second yeah. set where
4: well, he knocked himself out, but in the second set, he was down a break and not playing well at all, and Fognini was just, like, on fire. And I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. Rafa, you can't go out in the second set. But then, of course, it's Rafa, who has 22 grand slam wins, he's like, oh, I'm really good. Watch this, and he just turned. He flipped the switch and was just amazing to ride so out. So,
1: do you view the field as wide open on the men's side as well?
4: A little bit. I mean, there's been so many upsets all over the place. I mean, top five, top ten players, you know, in the tournament just getting knocked out. Um, I still think it's Daniil Medvedev's tournament to lose. He has been getting a lot of press. I mean, he's playing late after Serena, yeah, nobody, you know, nobody, and it's sort of like an there, anti-climax. Yeah. Right, and I think I think he's enjoying that because he, he wasn't really clicking on all cylinders coming into this, but he's looked really sharp in his first couple of matches, not playing super high-caliber opponents, but doing what he's supposed to be doing, taking them out very efficiently in, in three sets. Uh, he's so good on hard court, and he's so good here that I think he's going to be really tough. I think with Rafa, you worry about, you know, he's coming back from the abdominal injury, and, and he's not 100%. As we just talked about, you can never truly count him out. But there is one kid, and I, I think we've talked about him before, Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah, He's playing so well, and that is somebody that could easily win this tournament. And even if he doesn't win here, Kevin, he's going to win a ton of majors. This kid is the next big thing in tennis. And for those that haven't watched him play, watch him. He is exciting. He's like... He, you know, he fires up the crowd and his shot making ability is just astonishing and he gets to everything. I don't remember being that like, I mean, he's so young. <laughs> like, well, of course you get to everything. I mean, when I was young, I couldn't get to anything and he's just, he's all over the court. You yeah, know? Carlos so
1: is is from Spain and he is really over the last year taken. Men's tennis a little bit by storm. He's got great sort of yeah. charisma and star appeal, and he's the number three seed uh, in this draw. You know who I'm rooting for? I'm rooting for Kyrgios, but uh, he, I think, if, oh, if, if yeah, he,
4: he could win too. Yeah, easily. if he
1: gets through this next match tonight, I think it's Medvedev in the fourth round. You know, because he didn't get any points at Wimbledon for getting to the finals. He's the twenty three. Right. He's he's seeded twenty third. He would have been seeded, you know, he would have been a top ten seed and wouldn't have faced somebody like Medvedev uh, this early. Uh, that that could be one hell of a Sunday, you know, afternoon, you know, Sunday night match if it's Medvedev and, and Kyrgios. Um Great job, I appreciate it. Uh, Follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Stern, Mark with a C Stern with an E and listen to <laughs> courtside at the U S open, uh, his podcast. If you're a tennis fan, he's doing a great job with that. Uh, this is certainly from a sports standpoint, one of his first loves, although the Red Sox are the number one, uh, first love <laughs> and everything else pales in comparison.
3: Uh, well,
4: yeah. I, I I want to thank you Kevin and, and you, you and I have had so many great tennis conversations over the years.
3: <laughs> what are the other ones? I know
4: I know I know but we grew up with Connors and McEnroe, and Chrissy and Avrzelova and and that passion still lies within me and I know it's still within you and and I love talking tennis with you. So this, this, this is, is a is real there, great thing. Is you there know?
1: an American like ha, does Francis Tiafo have have a chance to advance here? Who does who does he have next? Because I know he won.
4: I should know, and I don't. Right. I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, not... I know he did win his matchup. I think. Oh, you know, I think he plays Diego Schwartzman, which would be a tough matchup for him because right. Schwartzman is just one of those guys that never quits and never goes away. Here's the thing with Tiago: he's super talented. He's really and he's great. He's you know he's got great energy. He just he gets to a certain point in the tournament and he can't get past like the fourth round of the yeah. quarterfinals. He he's due for a deeper run, but I've got I, until he does that. I'm always going to wait for that shoe to drop. It say, okay, this is the round where he just sort of falters. Yeah, but I, I hope that's not the case because I love watching him play.
1: For those that don't know, Francis Tiafo, a product of that college park uh, tennis complex. yeah, um, And yeah. Uh, he's done really it's well a great as a professional player. All right, thank you for doing this. I'll talk to you soon. Be good, man. Bye. All right, that's it for the show. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to Stanford, Steve. Thanks to London Fletcher. I know it was a long show today, but you've got all weekend, a holiday weekend to listen to it. Although, although I will be back on Monday with a podcast. All right, I will be doing a podcast on Monday, Labor Day. I'll be back on radio on Tuesday. Uh, Stay safe. Have a good holiday weekend. Next week, uh, we'll get into all of our NFL Uh, predictions and start building towards the NFL's Week 1, including, of course, Washington's
2: first-ever game as the Commanders in the regular season.
1: mypatriotsupply.com.